I took my son to his first march over the weekend. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to talk about it at all because it was such an emotional experience. Partly because, truth, it's my first march too. Certainly as a grown adult and definitely first for black lives and I'm embarrassed to say that out loud. He's 10, so he's growing out of hand-holding stages and getting more independent constantly. He was a little nervous going because being a child of the internet, images of tear gas and violence are what he sees of protest. There was a moment in the march where things grew louder and more intense as we came to an intersection. Cars stopped on either side, police present as hundreds of bodies descended on the town center. And as he had so many times as a child, he reached out and grabbed my hand. I shouted, no justice, no peace, no racist police. And I started to cry under my COVID safe, turns out also blubbering safe, face covering and hat and glasses. He reached to me as a reflex for safety. And in that moment, in only the tiny fleeting way that a white parent can ever know the pain that my black neighbors feel in this moment, I asked myself, can I keep you safe now? Do I trust this world to catch you safely if you misstep? How has history, white America, this government, these police so betrayed your generation that you are safer in this crowd of our neighbors than your black friends? I've never marched because it's never been the way I've chosen to participate. I hate big crowds where I get really anxious these days. When my kids were little, well, my kids were little. A lot of times protests were just too far away and ugh, people look so angry. And in spite of what anger I feel, that's not the way I've ever used it. Loud, confrontational, totally willing to put your body out there for the cause. And like some of you listening, I started thinking the same thing. Excuses. It sounds like a privileged place in the world to stay behind the scenes, to talk into a mic, to learn from your black colleagues, but not have to put your body out there for what you say you believe in. It's not enough that you think your work is in service of this cause anymore, I told myself over the last two weeks. It's not enough that you're willing to name the issues, to be vulnerable, to learn openly in a way that others can use to engage their own journey about ways we've been complicit in a world of white supremacy. We all need to do everything we're able to do. For a host of reasons, yours might not be able to walk and voice your anger publicly, but there's a role for you. Please do not be silent. Please do not let those voices waiting for a chance for activism to fit neatly into your life. Please find your role. My friend, I appreciate it, Leah, pointed me to movementforblacklives.org. It's m4bl.org, which is the Movement for Black Lives, and it's a great place to start getting informed, finding ways of participating, even if you're scared in this pandemic. My conversation in this episode was recorded the day before the protest, which was tiny compared to what's happening in other parts of the country. But in a way, it was also part of what made me realize that it was huge in the context of my son's life so far. Where else should we start, if not alongside our neighbors, to lift our kids' sense of hope that we can make this better together? And it starts with their parents, with their community, 
helping them see our faces accounted for when the struggle spills out into the open. Christy Crawford is the Director of Culturally Responsive and Sustaining Education and Equity Initiatives at Computer Science for All at the New York City Department of Education. And Christy, over time, has been so key to this show and introducing us to so many leaders in our space thinking about culturally responsive pedagogies. And today uh, is no exception. We're going to meet Lloyd Talley, joining Christy, who is a mixed methods developmental psychologist and interdisciplinary social policy researcher. He focuses on the intersections of social and life course identity development as a lens for meaning making and the prediction of educational, behavioral and mental health outcomes. We talk today about racial literacy and whether racial literacy has a role in the context of teaching new tech. In this case, computer science for all. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And once again, please stand up. Please find your way. Black Lives Matter. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. One of the things we talked about two days ago when we decided to get started with these conversations was that we're doing it at a time um, where I think our humanity is calling upon us, but the, the field that we serve is also calling upon us to have a lot of courage in this conversation and, and be um, learning openly and naming things. And um, so I start with a preface that uh, we are going to have what I hope is dialogue here, not as much a scripted um, interview as maybe sometimes we do. And I think the moment um, calls for that um, in lots of lots and lots of, of people's um, best ideas about, about where to from here dialogue. So um, I wanted to Lloyd, use a metaphor that you were uh, referring to just a minute ago and talk about for those who join this podcast as listeners because they're really into tech, um, let's use a metaphor that um, they might be familiar with around debugging, right? So um, when we talk about debugging and technology, we're talking about, um, we're talking about problems that exist somewhere deep in the the code or in the sort of um, nature of how the thing has been programmed. Um, and the process of debugging is is digging into that to figure out where the problem is and hopefully the idea is that we root it out and and come up with a better product. I want to have you just describe the problem that from your perspective, we're debugging right now. Thank you so much, Mark. Since my time in, in graduate school, I've always kind of thought about this notion of white supremacy as the algorithm, right? It's the algorithm that structures our lives. And we recognize that for some people, they can pass through the algorithm with no challenges, Whereas for others of us, that's not the condition, right? And just like any young computer scientist, right, we're getting stuck in that loop of the bug. Why isn't 
my program working, I think about race in a very similar way, not just in this moment, but forever. Um, computer science is building some of the most critical thinkers in our society, people who understand systems, people who can go into systems and reconstruct them and reimagine them, right? But the question about race and getting race and computer science to be equitable with one another is how do we use those same concepts to debug ourselves around race, right? Or to understand other people, to analyze and be able to debug or to understand more closely the challenges that they're experiencing around race. Because at the end of the day, these are all human issues that we're experiencing, right? If you don't understand the full complexity of race in America, you can start off small, right? And it's like learning a coding language, right? You have to have the language and the signs and the symbols to even be able to understand it, to read somebody else's code. And then when you're experiencing things like a racially stressful experience, right? How do you know that that's a glitch in your code, right? And that if you are not happy with the way that you've managed it, or if there are ways that you would want to do it again in the future, or even better, if there are strategies that you've prepared for the moment, how do you navigate that? And I think what we've seen in the past few weeks are a lot of people, especially law enforcement, who kind of have that racial glitch, right? That stress factor that comes in when they're in these tense situations that they have to overexert their force, right? But that comes from this algorithm of white supremacy, right? That if you're a white, male, heterosexual Christian, that the program is going to work better for you, right? And so the question comes down to how do we cultivate critically conscious computer scientists who cannot just see the problems in their algorithms, in their code, in the computer science lane, but then on the other side, see and use those same skills in the society and then bridge across them, right? How are my computer science projects or my computer science innovations advancing racial justice? How am I using computer science after I've debugged myself and now I'm trying to work on debugging society? How do I use those same skills and then have the courage to say something, right? And so I think if you don't integrate these two things, then unfortunately, we know once again that computer science has this plane where it hasn't been equitable. It really hasn't even been equal. But what we can do is help students and teachers to use computer science to reimagine a racial future. And that's what I mean by like a racial debug. So I've heard, um, I've heard the, one of the conversations that has come up um, for the team at New York City's Department of Education, the, the Computer Science for All group has talked about this difference between equity and equity practices and how they talk about those two things. Can you help illuminate for people why it's important to think about the difference between those two things? Sure. I think some of the issue is understanding what equity is. And unfortunately for computer science, to be honest, I think we've thought about it as this is possibly where the photo op is. And this is something that we do for certain children rather than thinking about how do we use computer science to solve the problem of injustice anywhere. We keep talking about CS as being a tool for creativity or coping or expression, but we know that we need to be really honest and introspective 
about how CS can be used to change what's going on in the world. Instead, it's been narrowly focused on very small pieces within the classroom. So I think hope and aspiration is, is amazing. And I think over the past few days, we've been hearing about the arc of the moral universe. But equity as a concept is more aspirational, right? It's a goal. And equitable practices are the steps that you take in order to achieve that goal. And so having a goal of wanting to run a marathon, right, or wanting to build an app is very different than sitting back and creating the steps and the storyboard and the mock-ups so that you actually are practicing the end goal, right? And so I think when it comes down to equitable practices in the classroom, I draw on some of the work of Howard Stevenson, right? Howard Stevenson's work on racial literacy and how racial stress is a very specific kind of stress. And that when we feel racially incompetent or we are racially stressed in different encounters, we don't all, we, we, we malfunction, right? <laughs> like we glitch, this kind of like that um, you word vomit or freezing up or getting very angry about things. But equitable, equitable practices would start with the notion of like reading that you have a stress point, right? That you are stressed by certain racial moments, encounters, and that some of your students may trigger some of those things for you. And so reading means being able to see the racial jungle, right? Being able to see the algorithm that is the world and where you fit in it. And because I think about practices, some people think that practices are always directed outward. And in the case of racial literacy and culturally responsive pedagogy, the first steps are directed inward, right? It's about whether you are aware of what is going on, because how can you teach someone about the slave trade, for instance, if you don't have very much confidence or belief that you can talk about it, even if you know the content, right? And so it's separating the content from the process to a certain extent, or recognizing that telling children about racial injustice or learning about um, civil rights is different than you doing the processing and the self-work of your complicity in that, mm. right? And understanding the historical facts and the dates do very little, especially when we're in a climate where you are gonna have a multiracial group of individuals who are all gonna be feeling differently about where they stand, right? And so the practice, the first is everyone doing their own work. The next thing though, in terms of a practice and why it's different than the goal of equity is that self-awareness being the first part of that long journey to equity, because as we see right now, a lot of people are getting self-aware, right? They're getting aware of the things that are going on in the society. Maybe it's because of the pandemic of coronavirus and the pandemic of systemic and interpersonal racism kind of coming mm. together at the same time, but they are realizing that they need to do the work. And so, you know, that is the first part. Then the the next part of Dr. Stevenson's theory is recast. So that means recognizing when you have racially stressful experiences, but beyond that, coming up with plans and strategies, right? So for instance, he um, talks about this notion of comeback lines or retorts. And the notion of racial literacy before it became kind of the psychological thing were about the practices that Black parents or that parents of Black children had to do in order to protect their children from a racial world. But all of us are finding the need to do that now. And so having comeback lines. So for instance, I've had experiences where someone will challenge me in terms of my skin tone or will say something egregious about another group. And at a point in time, I would be frozen, speechless, not know what to say at all. 
And it took me practicing racial literacy to get with friends and close colleagues to process the moment, to have my friends challenge me in a role-playing situation to say, what would you say if someone said this to you, right? Because one of the parts of racial power or, or white supremacist power is the ability to stifle you from saying anything, right? And that works for both or all races, right? And so I think the recast steps of having your strategies prepared and then the resolve is uh, the last part of it. And this is a practice as well of do something about it, right? After you've done your self-work, after you've begun to develop your strategies, almost think of it like martial arts. You get the mindset and then you get the moves and then you can go out there and you can do you know, racial Kung Fu if you want. Uh, but it's that those are the practices, the steps that you need to do in order to get to a place where you're thinking equitably as a mindset but they are born out in you doing things like racial life course reflections, right? Having challenging conversations with your children and remembering that the content is our history. We have to tell children the truth. We have to accept our own truth. But then the process is how do you do it? Am I preparing you? Am I only being uh, panicked in the moment, right? And just trying to figure out something to do. And that gets us away from equity, right? If people are panicking and they don't know themselves, if they aren't prepared for these moments, and if they're not taking or having the self-efficacy to intervene in these moments after they've done the other two steps, well, then we won't get to equity as a destination because we haven't been doing the practices along the way. Does that make sense? It does. And I think the point to capitalize on is to do something. For computer science, most every organization, let's be very honest, has not really thought about equity as do something, but more like multicultural education. So constantly we see that what's considered, quote, an equity lesson, if there is such thing as an equity lesson, might be adding a brown character, or it might be taking that photo op with children of color and we're getting to the point of no what does do something mean how do you have a lesson that actually works towards social justice does it include something about ethics and often when we bring that up folks who are even in k-5 may say well can we do something with social justice of course you can and even in k-2 that may mean something as simple as I'm gonna work on a Scratch Junior project that includes talking about me, that includes loving me, that includes exploring me without parameters. That act of self-love can be revolutionary in computer science, but we need to be honest about what do something means. Hmm. I wonder the extent to which, as you described it, uh, as an iterative process, right? Like. Um, we need, we need to progress. We need to build on our learning and our experiences. I, I wonder the extent, because Christy, you and I, <clears throat> you and I have, have chuckled about, about these things in the past where something feels, and I think educators, savvy educators who care about this topic do the same, right? We look at a piece of material or a lesson, and we know when it misses the mark, right? Um, it in, maybe it has done something like it's rebalanced the power in the imagery it uses, or or um, it's it's more inclusive, but it's not there entirely, and it and it sort of deserves a, a you know for somebody who's savvy and knows 
that's not it. And we're looking for something, do something means more than this. Um, and I also think do something where, right? Because I think do something for self, do something mm. for others, do something for society. Depending on where you are, you need to do a self-assessment of how racially literate or illiterate, competent or incompetent you yeah. feel, right? And it's not about um, a very cut and dry empirical sense of, I know that mm-hmm. I'm at a two in terms of racial literacy, but it is when I have these questions, am I feeling incompetent? Am I managing the stress responses that I'm having and letting those stress responses drive you to where you need to Mm -hmm. do your work, right? Because if it's in the encounter itself, well, you have to do self-work. If it's in the resolution itself, then you need to go back to how you manage your stressors Mm -hmm. there, right? Because at the end of the day, it's also not just about equity, right? And social equity, but it's also about health equity because these experiences tax our bodies, right? And we have heard for generations, whether it be in psychological literature or through anecdotes, how the burden of race, it impacts everyone in our society and it especially impacts those who are most marginalized, right? Some of our work on racial stress um, and, uh, and scholars of work on racial stress say it doesn't just permeate your psychology, it also gets into your body, right? In terms of cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, especially in terms of how you feel about your own racial, mm. right? And so I think figuring out what level you're at and which skill you need to be practicing at that time, whether it's understanding yourself and understanding the world or managing and strategizing for what you're going to do when these encounters happen or doing something in society, right? And being out there and recognizing that you're going to be doing this process throughout Mm. life. Race is a part of our world and it's not going away. So the more prepared you can be for it, uh, the better. Um, And so I think, and it sounds kind of corny, it sounds kind of, you know, granola and crunchy, but Think about what your experiences have been even over just the past week, right? You have to, as an educator, I think, recognize the feelings that you're having regarding this racial conflict that we're experiencing right now, right? I think there's never, or there are very rarely moments where it calls for us to understand where we are in terms of our racial literacy as now. And so I think with what we've been doing for the past year with educators, um, with administrators and with central office staff is actually getting them to see where they stand, whether it be through actually using surveys, right? And them doing self-assessments about it, whether it's them actually doing activities that help them to unpack and reflect on their own racial life course. But what it's allowing for them to do is to identify the areas of difference that stress them and then for us to deep dive into those areas, right? It's almost like, um, I know there are a number of holes in teacher education, but just like around ability status, there are some holes around human development and diversity and multiculturalism. And so I think that what we are trying to do by providing this to all three groups, right? Because everyone across the entire district needs this is that we're helping to them whether it be through you know quantitative empirical data by doing self-assessments or by some more of the more qualitative and self-reflective work helping them to gauge where they are and what their personal place for intervention is but then also helping them to understand the processes that youth are going through alongside of them in terms of 
racial socialization, racial identity development, so that they know that it also is their responsibility to intervene. Because developmentally, this is the experience that children and teens. So, have. can we? Would you? Can we play this out a little bit? The self-assessment piece, and, and what I what I am yeah. hoping to do is use some of the content that um, that you all have shared. And and there are no, um, we don't know who these these educators are. The the data is anonymous. Um, but these are the the kinds of comments that have come up in workshops and and sessions that you've done with educators, um, Christy and and Lloyd over time. So so here's a um, this is n- this is obviously not a clinical process, but let's do let's do a little bit of just sort of armchair assessment just to give people a sense yeah. of what we mean when we're talking about self assessment. So here's here's one. Um, uh, an educator says in quotes, I treat everybody equally. Just do the work in my classroom and you won't have a problem with me. And so I think that answer or that response speaks to this notion of read, right? So understanding the racial algorithm of our world, right? And understanding that our world, especially the, the Western world has never been equal. And so with the lack of equality, compensation is required to achieve equity, right? And so not recognizing, one, your students' individual needs and stories from a psychological and developmental place, right? Um, And so that's what I was talking about earlier around some of those holes in human development. Uh, But then also recognizing that there, because of the disparities in computer science, there are groups that deserve and for us to achieve equity have to receive more. And so if you are thinking that it is enough to be equitable, that's almost like, I mean, equal, that's almost like the notion of being colorblind, Mm. right? And that's like, that's probably a very colorblind example of CS education, right? That not recognizing that students of color, because they don't necessarily see themselves in these roles, maybe even if they have the competence and the ability, maybe less likely to engage. Or even thinking about, though you may be treating CS students within your classroom equally, what about all the students who are not in your CS classroom, right? Who have the same ability to be there, right? And then I think Martin Luther King talks about race, not just being about skin color or about um, you know ethnicity or ancestry, but it being this amalgamation of, I like to call it money, power, and disrespect, mm-hmm. or he calls it the three evils. So imperialism, capitalism, and prejudice. We also have to think about econ- economics, right? And that was a very meritocratic statement, right? Like, basically, if I just give everybody everything and they do what I tell them to do in kind of that imperial way, then everything will be fine. When we also know from the data that that's not what's occurring. And if we can just capitalize on that, an example is a teacher who says, well, I am just, I treat everybody equally. But what happens in your classroom is you have icons, heroes of CS, and along the wall, you have all these white men. You've already set that child up for imposter syndrome. That child feels like they're not supposed to be there. You've set that child up for stereotype threat when you say, well, you know what? We need to think about what the black community wants to do with CS Mm. right now. What would you say for data and algorithms? Can you imagine how that child is supposed to feel when you say things like that? You think you might be being helpful, but that's not thinking about or being responsive to what is actually Hmm. going 
going to happen with that child. I, uh, I don't, I don't know that. Well, you, as a developmental psychologist, you probably would know better than I do, but, uh, I don't know that it's an actual term, but if I had to armchair diagnose that statement, the phrase that came to me right away was power blindness. I don't know that that's an actual thing or, or that I'm sure somebody has quoted that at some point, but, but that's what it feels like to me is like somebody's just really power blind, um, in thinking like, just do the work, you know, like I've set it up equally. Just, I mean, but also know that that is, that is white supremacy though. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and also keep in mind when I say white supremacy, everyone can be complicit in white supremacy. There are some people of color who are far more complicit in white supremacy than some other people who I know personally. Right. And so I'm also saying that keep it. I don't even, we don't even know the race no, we of don't. this educator. Right. But it is to say that whiteness is about power. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that and so that is how racial literacy needs to be there in the classroom. Right. Because even at that, a lot of times we think the examples of racial discrimination and bias that we've seen on the news are, the you know, are maybe the most egregious ones because we can see it and they hurt us the most. Uh, but also there's a form of racism, which is an aversive mm. form of racism and probably more detrimental because it just says, I'm just not going to talk yeah. about that. Right. I'm just not going to engage yeah. in that. And once again, silence about race is a message about race. Right. And so if you are silent about race, then you have to recognize that you probably don't have the vocabulary to talk about it yet. Right. Or you haven't developed the stress response and coping strategies that you need to manage that experience. That you okay. Have. So here's, here's another one. And I'm going to, I'm going to do another statement and I, I want um, just for the sake of exercise and because we have, I have another question to ask you about black educators and um. So here's the statement. Before you answer, let me let me explain. So the statement is in quotes, and I think there are five O's here. Hello, exclamation point. I've been teaching for 12 years. Do I really have to sit through this? So I'm going to say, I don't know. Again, we don't know who these folks are, um, but but let's picture that that's a a veteran black educator. Um, I want to ask a question that I think uh, has come up among, among the three of us. And, and so let's diagnose this statement, but also I want to ask you a question about whether this work in racial literacy, um, is as much or to any varying degree for black educators as it is for white educators or other people of color. So I think the key is, it's not necessarily race, but it's racial, right? Meaning that it's about the dynamics that occur and about the experiences that someone has had. And so in relation to that message specifically and black educators, I think you can read it in two different ways, right? You can read it as fatigue. Mm -hmm. I've been hearing about this and I was an early adopter and I've been here since the beginning and now you're just getting to this. Or you can hear it on the opposite side where we've had a major shift in the educational and demographics of the United States and in the way education occurs in the United States in the past 20 years. But I think uh, above and beyond that, racial literacy is not like a stamp that you get. It's not a certification, you know, it's not, um, you know, a a credentialing as much as it is a practice, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you've been practicing it for 20 years, then I hope that you would understand the need for continued practice because these issues aren't changing. 
But also, I recognize from an empathetic stance that for a teacher of color, it could be tiring mm. and exhausting. But I wouldn't say that racial literacy has nothing for them, right? I would say that the way that the concept of racial literacy emerges from the concept of racial socialization, so the work that Black parents would do to help their children to navigate racism. So a lot of educators of color have already been receiving those messages for their mm. whole life, right? It's kind of a privilege to not have to receive those messages because the world is safe enough for you. And so I think where we get back to is this notion of the midpoint, right? Managing the stress, the, the recast aspect of it, because I can understand tired and fatigue, but something that we teach the instructors in exploring equity in computer science is that taking care of oneself and being able to choose one's battles is important, right? And so I think there's a difference between empathizing and knowing that some people just have never gotten it because things have changed so much and they may be tired, but it's still room mm. for practice. And this opposite side where they've been doing it for years and now they're waiting for people to catch up to the bandwagon and there, it's less about the awareness of it, right? And why it needs to be done and more about how are you managing the stressful experiences of doing that? Because at the end of the day, I always tell educators of color, for the racial march, for the, the march towards equity, I understand, but more so we need you on this journey. And that means that you have to take care of yourself. And so, you know, I think practice makes perfect and, you know, especially perfect practice makes perfect. So I don't think racial literacy as a practice is something that even after, you know, 40 years, I'll give up mm. personally. But I also recognize the need for us to use a comment like that to be able to think about where is the person in this journey? Have they been doing it and they've been doing it and now they need to go back to recasting, right? And to figure out how they debug these racial stressors that they're experiencing again. Or are they, are they at reading, right? Where they just don't understand the relevance of it at all. And now they need to come to an understanding about the sociopolitical re reality of the country that we live mm. in. Okay. Last one. Ready? Yes. Oh, so Christy and I's son, Xavier, how old is Xavier, Christy? He's um, eight. He's eight. We play a game called um, Black History uh -huh. Jeopardy. And so this kind of feels like <laughs> Black History Jeopardy. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, and that is a racial socialization practice, right? Yeah. Black History yeah. Jeopardy? It's a racial socialization practice. So if we're trying to get more tangible, right? How are computer science students helping to improve their own knowledge of their culture and other cultures through these mm. CS modules nice. as well, too? Okay, last one. Yes. Quote, I feel like I'm being judged. What does this have to do with computer science? Uh, 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 Presumably, this was a, a training that took place that was for computer science educators in um, to, to help them sort of get introduced to some of these literacies they might build. So yeah. let me read it again. I feel like I'm being judged. What does this have to do with computer science? You might be being judged at the moment. And the only way to get through that feeling of judgment and to get to a place where you feel competent to engage in these experiences is through practice, right? And so the question is, how does race not have to do with computer science, right? How does race not have to do with all of education broadly? And so I think we're back at kind of that first two steps, right? That read, why if, so I have a short story. Um, I was coming back from Trinidad from a research conference I was going to 
I put my passport in the scanner um, so that it would facially recognize me and I would be able to move forward. And after the whole line had gone, I was having trouble with the machine and I looked to my left and there was an African-American, another African-American man standing there having the same problem Mm -hmm. I was having, right? And so the question at the end of the day is if that is the product of computer science, right? If that is the product of computer science innovation and it's still without another human being there can treat us inequitably, right? By not being programmed to appreciate our difference. Then I think that there is a question about what do we imagine the future of computer science being? Is it a colorblind future of computer science? Is it a future of computer science that advances racial equity? Is it a computer science and computer science education that stays silent about the inequities that computer science is already producing and allows for them to continue being complicit in that Mm -hmm. system, right? And so I think to that educator's question, I think race is, Claude Steele says it best, race is in the air that we breathe, Mm -hmm. right? And so if it's in the air that we breathe, it's in every classroom that a student goes into and computer science is not exempt there, but also computer science as the wave of the future and contemporary society is going to structure and shape race in profound ways. And I think that's the impetus to understanding why we need our budding computer scientists to be critically conscious and culturally mm. But I think a big part the teachers under, need to understand is we are not judging them. And we'll go back to Claude Steele, go back to Beverly Daniel Tatum. This is American smog. We all breathe it in. So this is not to say, I think we need to define white supremacy. What I keep noticing is every survey and every conversation and every class we have is that folks think I'm not a bad person, I'm not a racist, and not understanding just by being born in America, you may be a racist. This is not a personal piece. This is something that we all have to live with and we have to figure out a way to debug the messages that are constantly coming at us from the classroom, on television, on the radio, in magazines, just by living where we live. It takes us quite a long time for teachers to get past this personal piece and recognize that it's work we all have to do. But Lloyd, would you define what white supremacy is? Well, I think white supremacy at its core is a system, right? And it's a system that gives out of sheer bias and prejudice, which is socialized into all of us, creates a situation, a material situation where white people get access to more resources, to safety, to more power that is not due to them, right? We all built this country. And so an understanding or a thought that white people are the primary contributors or deserve their deserve their privileged status in our society is the core of what makes white supremacy so challenging because it's like equity, right? It's not that individuals want the same treatment as white people on its face. It's that we want to be, we want the challenges that have occurred in the past to be reconciled. And so white supremacy keeps this air of not only preserving like white fragility, white fragility and the stress that comes from being underprepared to talk about race, but it then goes into our systems where then either implicitly or explicitly, we are giving more opportunity, power, safety, opportunity, and the ability to dream and thrive really 
to white people, or at the very least, we are not standing in intervention of systems that will allow it to happen without us doing anything at all, because they were built that way. I also think there's a very, there's a disconnect about the way that teachers are used as weapons of oppression that it may not be our intent, but but the impact of what happens is, I think that's part of something that's been skipped over in a lot of education courses. And it's something that we need to uncover now, especially in computer science. Well, from my time teaching um, as a graduate student at Penn, and I, had, I, I was teaching in the School of Education, and I was teaching courses on Black psychology and on Black boys. And what I was finding with the students, right, I would have, you know, 30 teacher, 25, 30 teacher education students every semester, maybe in two courses a semester. And what I would find in hearing from them is that they would say, the first time we've had a critical conversation about race is when we took this black psychology class. We've taken a human development class that we've forgotten about. We've taken a multicultural issues and education course, which gave us the foundations for understanding the historical part of this, but not really the way that it happens in everyday life. And many of them didn't even understand their own racial identity development, right? Doing that deep introspection to how did my racial views even get here? And so, Christy, I agree with you that what we see, and I think, you know, our collaborators, you know, Maya, Meg, Sarah, will all agree that I think a lot of these equitable practices start in the fact that they're missing from our teacher education curriculum, right? And when we focus on kind of these hard numbers and these outcomes rather than the citizens that we're creating for our society, it's much easier to leave those things out. The other note that I will say around kind of like tools of, of the system is that, I mean, I think that you have teachers who fall on both sides of the spectrum, right? And I think you would agree with that, Christy. You have teachers who are anti-racist and who are here for liberatory pedagogies. And then you have teachers who have adopted dominant perspectives on what success is and what merit is and on how culture should be viewed in the classroom. And I think part of our developing our own racial literacy is being able to see both of those individuals. And then as people who are trying to help develop their practices, help to un help them and those around them to understand the process that they're gonna go through or that they will go through and that they're not alone in that process because a lot of us have or are currently going mm. through the same processes. Exactly. Is it possible for us to talk about what happens if we don't do this in computer science and examples of where someone, a computer scientist, this obvious, has not had much association with folks of color. There's not development with folks of color. There's not leadership with diverse people and what sort of products it turns well, out. In a way, it's come up already, right? Your, your facial ID um, story at the airport is a really good, really good example of what stakes, uh, we're talking about here. And it's one of the things that makes me, uh, you know, that, that statement that this educator had, I feel like I'm being judged. Um, I agree with everything you said, Chrissy. I was raised in the church, Mark. I was raised in the church and sometimes conviction is a good thing. It helps to highlight for us where we stand and where we need to improve, right? And so I agree with Christy that we are not judging our participants, but that feeling, at least from my, you know, traditions is called conviction, right? And so it's not, 
it, I think we have to be sensitive about the process by which like making sure that we're being warm and yes. that we're not uh, ensuring that people are getting, but that feeling mm-hmm. that one has is that's a conviction well, but, feeling, but right? That is. Here, yes. And he, and, and the point that I was hoping to make is, is just that I think a lot of times when people feel judged, there's um, whether or not they're being judged by someone outside um, is one part of the question. But but what I find in myself a lot of times is that when I feel like I'm being judged, I'm judging myself to a degree as well. And what I want to say to this educator is, you know, uh, you are likely not being judged um, by the folks in the room who are running this training. You likely are being judged by yourself. You most certainly are at some points being judged by your students. Um, But critically for computer science educators, if our machines are judging from your airport story, then what makes any of us feel so precious that we are not subject to judge ourselves in order to uh, produce better outcomes from uh, in that story you described, right? So coming back to this self-assessment and the beauty of what I think is we're we're trying to produce you all are trying to produce in this work in terms of a self assessment is um i get it completely that ju- being judged does not feel emotionally good um but also um you know i think in i i think it's fair to say that in this work we all need to be if you are in this work and by work i mean in in education generally um you need to be prepared uh to feel uncomfortable and to face some of that stuff and go through it as um in in the 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 debugging iterative spirit that you know you're professing uh same same thing so and, and mark i think i want to just just take a second to expound upon that because I think the the pain and the discomfort, one, what a lot of pedagogy teaches us is that discomfort teaches. Mm. Discomfort is the emotional labor that you go through. It is the mm. work that one goes through in order to change mm. one's mind or to learn something new. And then also on the opposite side of that, let's not think about the equity, I mean, the equality of this. Let's think about the equity of it, that being embarrassed and humiliated when my Apple watch doesn't work because my skin tone is too dark um, or being part possibly hit by a self-driving car because my skin tone is mm-hmm. too dark. Um, those are things that I think are maybe more tragic than, than critical self-reflection and much less easy to control when they're out in the world, right? And so I think that's that's the balance that we have to play here, right? Is my introspection worth um, the fact that my innovations may or may not improve the world and advance racial equity or advance white supremacy and stand complicitly in silence when I know that this is in the air, right? Mm-hmm. This is the algorithm. And if I'm just ignoring what the algorithm is, then I just don't have a strong grasp on my own world, which is something that I then have to turn in and do that emotional labor and that self-work to even start the process to being active in, um, 
in my pedagogical space. I think if you approach your classroom, like I know a lot of educators do, um, as walking in every morning or every period to a room full of aspiring and future innovators, those stakes become much more clear. So, um, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly agree more with, with what you're saying there. I do want to, um, I do want to unpack a little bit of, we, we have, um, some language to unpack and what I was hoping to do is, is, um, put some phrases to you both and maybe we could, um, like ping pong back and forth and just have you guys define some language that I think, um, for the educator who is hearing this conversation and is eager to take a next step, I think, I think knowing some vocabulary is a really, a really good, um, step. So you guys up for that? Um, so let's start with, um, I actually want to start with translanguaging. This is a phrase that, that has come up in our conversations and, um, and I think is highly relevant. Yeah, I would say it's just embedding code into these multilingual conversations. What typically happens is you may hear teachers say, well, I don't even think these kids are literate in their own language. Or are they going to be able to speak code? We're having a problem with English. But these are just the type of children that are perfect to add HTML or CSS or JavaScript or anything else their lexicon. These are children who are already multilingual. Programming is just another Mm -hmm. language. So if this means that we are using language, this programming language, within the child's sphere of interest, I've seen folks like Sarah Vogel at CUNY, who is our expert in translanguaging, Sarah and her team, use programming to talk about telenovelas that the child may be talking about with Abuela. It is amazing to see the work that they're doing that this is where the child is. These are the social mediums that the child is using and the languages that the child is speaking. And then how does CS fit into that? It should be one piece that the child Mm. has. Programming should not be separate from the life that the child is leading. And that's how we make sure that the child is actually tuning us in and not tuning us out. Um, And I think that's a critical part of the culturally responsive aspect of pedagogy, right? Is that that integration of students' lived experiences in their culture, I think is not just important to be equitable, especially to students who may be English language learners and otherwise, or who have other um, you know, core home languages, but also recognizing that with this languaging, we're, or with, with translanguaging, we're also helping students to draw on the things from their home environment that make things in education mm. stick, right? And that, because that's the thing I think about culture in the brain that, you know, Zaretta Hammond talks about so beautifully, but that we don't think about as much as that 
our cognition is shaped by the symbols that we saw before we walked into that pedagogical space. And so leaning all of those things helps you to understand and to innovate more quickly, right? And so if you have a whitewashed CS curriculum that doesn't bring anything, or even if it's just colorblind, right, where it doesn't talk about race at all, you're actually not capitalizing on the strengths of those learners. And so in the same way that racial literacy is integrated, translanguaging being integrated helps to make those identities that children bring into the classroom salient and helps them to make connections to content more quickly so that you can actually expedite learning. Okay, so let's def- um, can you do racial literacy as different from um, these other concepts? And I think that mm-hmm. would, you, would you be comfortable with the characterization that in, in a culturally responsive practices framework or pedagogy framework um, – that, that these things are all elements of a toolkit for culturally responsive practices. Does that sound right or does that sound? No, that sounds, that sounds okay. right. I think we think about culture as something that sometimes is somewhat separate from ourselves. I, I sometimes think about culturally responsive and sustaining education as identity responsive and sustaining mm. education, right? All of us have these different social categories and social identities that we fit in that range every spectrum from ethnicity to ability status, um, you know, to health status even. And so every student is walking in with a gender and a race and a potential or current sexual orientation, so on and so forth. And so in exploring equity in computer science with these first three um, modules or first four modules on culture generally, then race, then bringing in ethnicity and language and then ability status with universal design for learning. We're helping to target and help educators understand those different identities that students walk into the Mm -hmm. door with and what things are relevant to those different ways of expressing those identities, right? And so I think, yes, it sits in this framework of culturally responsive education, but I think about it as how can you appreciate the multiple dimensions of identity that students have, and then also help them to uncover the ones that may be, uh, may be hidden, right? Or that may be um, obscured because you, all, you understand them as a full person, right? Or you understand the social markers that they carry with them and what that means for their lived mm. experience and what will arouse their learning mind. So when we're talking about culturally responsive ed, we're trying to get teachers to take practices out of their silos. Teachers have so much on their plate and we're taught all these different things at different times and we, we aren't able to look at the connection so that when computer science for all is talking about culturally responsive and sustaining education, we mean being very clear that social emotional learning, project-based learning, universal design for learning, translanguaging, and queering the curriculum is combined with activism, that's that do something piece, and awareness. Awareness that there are systems that work upon all of us to bring about a product that we don't want. We're saying combine all these things for the full person to teach them best and to make positive changes in society. You should have seen the reactions when we did a, a small pilot unit on family structure and sexual orientation. And the teachers just 
opened up. They were so nervous and afraid when we first warp started working on it. And then after getting some educational materials and some socialization around it themselves and being able to ask hard questions and then being able to work to integrate it in their CS projects collectively and then iterate back to the equity team, right? That These were the opportunities where you really see teachers say, I've heard of these things and I have some understanding, but now it's time for a deeper understanding because there may be a child in my class who may need a special mm. attention from the, because they're in this identity group. That is equity, right? That is what equity is. It's not, I mean, you know, at James Banks' first level of culture, somewhat performative, right? Just including people in the dialogue is not enough, right? Beyond including people in the dialogue, how are you nurturing their identities? And then also, how are you helping to um, kind of be a safeguard uh, for the fact that we know that unmanaged, sometimes computer science can exhibit the biases that we humans are unaware of and then unintentionally embed in a code. So, um, I want to I want to move us to to wrap this conversation, um, but I do I'm going to give give you both a little bit of time to organize a last word on um, on all of this, and I I think what I would love for your last word to be if I could uh, be any part of helping you orchestrate it is um, to speak to the educator who hears all of these um, ING words um, and ologies and practices and feels daunted and feels um, feels like I want to, I want to do something. I want to be active but this all feels like a lot. Um, you know, maybe I don't, uh, I'm, I should have gone for more credentials. I should, uh, be teaching in a different place, you know, whatever it is. I think, I think people, um, it is good that people feel overwhelmed right now in a sense. Uh, but I also think the job of all of us, um, to each other, to, right. As, as humanity, as peers and colleagues and uh, is to help each other sort of move forward. So, um, so I, I would hope that, um, in giving you guys the last word, you can speak a little bit to helping people move forward a little bit and not be so, so overwhelmed by what sounds like a, a set of really intellectual practices that, um, I want to encourage everybody and motivate everybody to feel like they are ready for those practices. So, um, like many of my white colleagues, I have a lot of the same questions about even no matter how much you think the person next to you is already doing or already a part of social justice. If you are interested in the work, if you are doing the work, you are always asking, what can I do? Um, what more can I do? One of the things in the last week that I've been doing is really paying attention to my black colleagues and some of the heroes who I have um, had the good fortune of bringing into my life through this show. Um, one of them is Kamau Bob. Um, Kamau is the uh, global head of diversity for Google. Um, 
he came to that post after achieving many, many things at, um, at Georgia tech where he is faculty and, and, um, anyway, he, he posted something from his blog that's actually two years old. And I read that this week among many other, um, resources, um, by the way, for, um, anyone who's interested in this work, um, you should be seeking resources outside, shut off Facebook, shut off your social media where, uh, folks know you go, um, search for resources and I'll, I'll give you a place to start. Um, uh, go to M4BL, um, the movement for black lives is a great place to start. Um, I also highly recommend places like The Root, which is uh, widely known as some of the best journalism um, out there that will give you a needed perspective. Anyway, I was reading Kamal Bob's post from two years ago, and he's talking about um, this address that Barack Obama gave. It was his first address as a citizen and um, Kamau is reflecting on his first line is America is a complicated place. I'm struggling with what it means to be an American patriot. Um, and he goes on to talk about Obama's um, note. And he talks about how. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Um, he says, while I, I know these facts, I'm still committed to the American ideal that President Obama reminded us of so beautifully. Perfection is something to aspire to, he said, but better is something to commit to. Better is always worth fighting for. We can make our nation better. That is the constant charge. That is the constant battle. Um, I want to hand it over to you two for uh, a last word. And to me, I, I read that in part because I think it ties to that first comment that you made, the the the, um, the ideas that you were bringing, Lloyd, about uh, debugging, um, not just in a technical sense, but in a human sense and in a, a, a psychological, emotional sense, um, better is something that that uh, I certainly commit to. Um, and I wonder, uh, how, how you would leave educators who listen to this and really want to take next steps. Thank you for the question. I, I think I'm going to approach it in the same way that we were approaching it for in levels, right? As in there are levels to this, because I think to your, your point right there, are some people who are going to be in the first step, and then there are going to be some people who are be a little bit more advanced. And so I think the first thing that one can do is to listen to someone else's and to understand their own story of race, right? And I think that's the first thing, right? Before you go and read a million books, before you go out and you march, think about what are the salient events around race that you've experienced in your own life. I like to do this as a timeline, like a graphical timeline. Some people like to journal about it. But I would say the first commitment is commit yourself to journaling or to reviewing this timeline at least once in the next mm -hmm. week so that you can really understand how your racial worldview has been shaped, right? Because I think the introspection part is the very first step. We are oftentimes pushed to do something in the real world or at least perceived in the real world and do more harm, 
right? And so I think I want to start there. If you're feeling really uncomfortable about it, start by reflecting on your own story. And then something that I've seen done in the past is actually interviewing someone who is a vastly different age than you within your own family, Mm. if you can. And ask them about what their experience with, with race are and take an opportunity to compare them, right? I think what we don't realize is, and it's just like, you know, Buddhist practices is that it's about doing the work of self-reflection and understanding that at the end of the day, race is changing. So our understanding of race also has to change. But I love the African or the Ghanaian thought of Sankofa, go back and get it, right? So start by going back to understand your own racial story, right? Because I, I remember talking to my grandmother about race when I did this for myself. And at first she was very reluctant to talk about it. And I was trying to understand, she integrated the majorettes at Eastside High in Patterson, New Jersey. And she's telling me that race wasn't a thing for her. And then I had to understand through her story what the racial worldview was, what coping strategies she had developed to dealing with race and how that was a part of her story. And so I think that's the the, the basement level, right? That's the ground floor level. That's the foundation level. The second level is then once you now understand these experiences, Try to catalog for you moments where you've noticed your own stress about it and what were the things that triggered those stressors. Because I can almost guarantee you that they've happened in succession the same time you've encountered it because you didn't prepare for what you would do. And then take those and really critically think about what would you say and how would you handle it and practice those things. And it may sound a little rhetorical, but it is about the performance of and the management of the racial encounter mm. and the stress about it. And so I think if you know what you would say, you're less likely to freeze up or be angry, right? If you know what to do then and you're prepared, then you'll be able to get to this next step, right? And so the last thing for people who feel like they really understand the encounters and the stressors and they really understand themselves, now it's your opportunity to do two things. Take care of yourself and recognize that you have a choice in when you engage. But then on the opposite side of that, especially if you're a white person, right, use those skills in allyship. Call out to those in power who you know will respect your privilege more so than they may respect those of others to address and to call out these instances as they happen, even if it's in a humble way to say, I saw this, I want to talk about it. And as a way of intervention amongst your own people, right? Because that is what we're seeing on the streets right now, right? African-Americans are out there marching, but coronavirus and the impending thought of death when we are coming out of a period of Black death or an experience of Black death, what you can do is if you got those other two pieces so you don't harm anyone, now speak on behalf of the people in your community and go out there and do the things that help to amplify those voices because you've done the prior. Beautifully put. Um, Christy. So I would say that this is a process. This is a lifelong process. Process. This is not a bunch of boxes to check. Um, this is continual reflection. We would never go to a doctor that just takes one course. We go to a doctor that's always mm. learning. And we know this, but it's hard. Every American problem is put on teachers. We see that time and time again. So we all need to understand that. Look, Teachers were just asked to do everything virtually, but we take from Gloria Ladson Dillon, teaching is an art. So while artists are modifying the medium, while 
learners are modifying the medium, we need to be ridiculously patient. And we also want teachers to realize that we see you, we are you, we have been in your shoes. You're doing the work, you're on the street. But unfortunately, as teachers, if you don't have fancy language, if you don't have a PhD, you ought, your voice isn't often valued. I find that we value quantitative data rather than qualitative data. But I'm saying it's okay. Write down your thoughts. Take the pieces that we have. Take the New York State Framework on Culturally Responsive and Sustaining Education and point it out to people. That's the muscle behind what you're already doing. Some of the work that we're talking about, your administrator may not understand, but this is the time. Now is the time to push them on policy, push them on research, push them for what you know because you are in the classroom with children six hours a day, 180 days a year. And guess what? Even virtually, you are that most important piece with their families. I think it's now of any time. You can take some time for introspection and then push people who weren't willing to listen. But we will work with you. I am really grateful for this conversation and um, it will be the first of more to come. And and um, I'm really grateful to both of you for spending time doing it. Um, I hope that, uh, and, and I'm pretty optimistic that a lot of people listening will be grateful as well. Um, every time we get to talk, um, I'm, I'm learning and, uh, and I thank you for being in it. And, but Mark, I just have to say, thank you for you for taking subjects that don't seem so sexy, <laughs> making them sexy, making them something that we want to talk about because I'm really worried that when it comes to September or when it comes this summer, kids are gonna wanna talk about how do we use data and algorithms and networks to change the world? So we need to be in a position to have this conversation and figure out how we can best help them change the world. Yeah. Amen. I, I, um, I, uh, another one of my uh, heroes, uh, colleague, Named Akbar Cook. He's a um, school principal at Westside High School in Newark, New Jersey. And um, you should all uh, follow him on Instagram. He's been having these amazing uh, live Instagram conversations with um, other education leaders who, who care about New Jersey. And, and um, one of the things he said the other night that really stayed with me is um, – he, he, I'm, I'm paraphrasing something he said, but the way it stuck in my head is he said, you know, um, I'm worried about getting in the way. Like my, my baby, he calls his students, my babies and, and my babies have the light. They have the energy. Um, they're ready for this. They want this. Um, and, and I don't want to essentially what he said is I don't, I don't want to us as adults to get in the way of that. And, and, uh, I think that's so powerful. And I think it, it is, uh, Another way of saying what you just did, Christy, is we, we need to be prepared, in essence, to, um, to hand over the agency and, and skills that, that young people um, are, are ready for, you know, to, to take all of this on. So I appreciate you both. Thanks, Mark. Woo.
long time. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.